Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and today our guest is Dr. Marcy Axness. Dr. Axness is a leading authority on childhood development before and just after birth. She specializes in issues of parent-infant bonding and the social, emotional, and spiritual aspects of parenting. As an author, professor, speaker, and counselor in private practice, she counsels parents and parents-to-be on best practices in parenting and is considered one of the world's few experts on the primal issues involved in adoption. Dr. Axness is a featured expert for a new documentary film, Trauma, Brain, and Relationship, Helping Children Heal. I am delighted to bring you Dr. Marcy Axness. Marcy, I'm so grateful to have this chance to share your work with Living Hero listeners. I'm happy to be here. The issues we're going to be discussing today are among the most important issues that any of us can consider together. And I'd love it if you could just tell us a bit about your background and what brought you to your very holistic work as an advocate for more conscious parenting. Well, I guess I would have to say that my early life was really a laboratory for all of what I'm studying now. Um, and and I think I think most of us really come to what it is we're passionate about, um, and if we're lucky enough, also what what our profession is, because of of what our own stories are. So I was conceived by parents who were not in a position to parent me, and so I was relinquished for adoption, and it was a very pioneering adoption where. My uh, adopting parents were able to meet my birth mom, and then when I was 21, I met her. And I mean, there's you know volumes of books right there and that. But really, you know, from the first time I stepped into a therapist's office and um, started learning about, you know, I didn't have all the words for it then. But what I now know is that when a child is very young, starting in infancy, actually beginning before they're born. There is this silent learning that takes place, this very powerful silent learning that really happens amongst the human interactions that she's having over the days and weeks and months of her early life, and that these are engraving um, patterns of relating, you know, via this very, the, the neural encoding process of what we would call implicit memory. And so in all these years, I was accumulating this, I guess I would call it a suite of lifelong beliefs about myself, about my expectations of other people, you know. Um, and this happens in these early months of childhood. And I think many of us can relate to the idea of spending a good deal of energy in our adult lives trying to go back and uninstall those buttons. So oh, yes. <laughs> um, that's why the self-help shelves at a bookstore are so full, because it's largely outside of the realm of conscious um, awareness. One writer calls these um, beliefs masquerading as facts these things that we gather in these early years. But one of the fundamental aspects of what we're gathering is that we're using these relationships, these primary relationships in our lives, to learn about the world and to prepare ourselves to excel in that world. And the fundamental learning is whether we're going to be successful being connected to other people or not, whether we're going to be able to have empathy and vision and enlightened action or not. And so that really then, you know, catapults me 30 years forward into what I'm doing now, which has to do with how we raise a peaceful generation. You know, it was many years after I started looking into my own issues that I was really led into looking into the field of prenatal and perinatal psychology, which basically just backs all of that attachment research up into the womb and all the way really to conception and even before the idea that um, we're always learning from the very, very beginning, certainly at a much more basic biological, biochemical level. We're learning about the world we're going to come into. And probably the most important theme underlying everything that I'll talk about, and it certainly has a lot to do with creativity, is that at every level 
and every stage of development, from the very basic cellular level to our organs, to us as individuals, to families, to communities, to societies, to countries. The fundamental question that, that is always being asked uh, by the cell, by the person, by the country, by the race, the question is, are conditions safe and secure so I can grow into my fullest potential, or are conditions threatening, dangerous, insecure, so that I must protect and limit my potential and instead extend my energy to defend myself? You use two very powerful terms as titles for the work you do. One of them is quantum parenting, and the other is parenting for peace. So I wonder if you could go on and share with us the research and experience behind these very carefully chosen titles. The quantum and quantum parenting, and you know, that term is thrown around a lot, but really at the heart of quantum research and, and, and you know, Einstein and Schrodinger and all these people who were who were doing this work, what they came to discover was the, you know, rather unexpected and uncanny influence that just our simple consciousness has upon the world. That when uh, that when we put our attention on something, it changes the very nature of that something. So. Um, you know, when it comes to ourselves, we can think about, um, as Bruce Lipton, um, one of my favorites, says, mind is the interface between the world and our biology. So one example I use when I go and I, I talk to high school biology students, um, I have them close their eyes and imagine that I'm coming around and I have them hold out their hand and I imagine, have them imagine them coming around and putting a handful of sour Skittles in into their palm, and I have them, you know, feel the sugary coating and kind of roll them around in their hands, and then I say, now, pop them in your mouth and bite down hard. And then I ask them to open their eyes, and I and I say, you know, how many of you had saliva squirt into your mouth? And, all, you know, virtually all the hands go up, and some, some of them will say, I didn't even, it wasn't even, in, um, right when you said sour Skittles, I started salivating. So I use that as a really um, what we might call a gross example as opposed to subtle example of the effects our thoughts have on our very biology. But that process is going on all the time. We are in a continual dialogue with our 50 trillion cells, um, with the mind as an interface, again, with this constant question always being asked, growth or protection. A couple of parenting examples would be if we're dealing with a three-year-old and we're wanting to have some particular behavior happen with a three-year-old, the thought or the image that we hold in our mind about the likelihood of her doing that makes all the difference. And uh, the, the best example is seatbelts. Most parents, even if they have a pretty, um, you know, uh, contrarian three-year-old, most parents report that seatbelts aren't too much of an issue because in their mind, the parents' mind, it's not it's a non-negotiable issue and that consciousness is what is picked up on by the child. Children don't listen so much to our words. They they, they really feed on our consciousness. Um, you know, another thing that happens all the time in my private practice is parents come and they have a, a behavioral issue with a child or a developmental issue. And I, I take a full history, and I really go back into the pregnancy and the birth of the child. And I get a, a, a story that the parents hadn't really been able to look at in, a, in an objective way. And when I'm able to compassionately point out that, you know, this might have been a really difficult um, experience for her, and based on that child's true experience, the whole perception, that whole um, idea that the parent has of the child's behavior shifts. And when that reframe, that shift in consciousness of the parent comes online, everything shifts. You know, so it's very subtle. It seems like very small, but it's huge, and that's really what the quantum is about. Is the research there to back this up, or is it at this point uh, somewhat anecdotal? 
Well, there is a tremendous amount of research on the effects of consciousness upon matter. Is that what you're... No, in parenting or in expectation in the mind of a parent. Uh, Just as with, for decades and decades and decades, the only research available about um, around pre- and perinatal psychology and that that people could have memories of their intrauterine life, for example. The only research available was clinical research, meaning what emerged in clinical work with patients. And I would say that that's the case really with this. One of the things that's quite true in our society is we don't value parenting very much in in the sense that we don't throw much research grant money at it, if that makes sense. So this is a pretty rarefied area. I have the research of my dozens of clients who come back and report to me their successes, and that's pretty much what I need. But, you know, it does get in the way, for example, of if we want to institute something bigger at the level of policy, at the level of yeah. um, public exactly. education. Absolutely. They're going to want the research, exactly. but how can you, know, you big... fund something yeah. that doesn't have a product except for broad-scale societal Very benefits? Good. Absolutely. The other the other piece of quantum parenting is just the sort of the exciting growth that is possible when parents are finding that conventional methods aren't quite working for them anymore, and so that they can take a little bit of this this information and this guidance just just enough. It doesn't take a lot very often that just sort of flips them into you know takes that quote unquote quantum leap into a new orbit of effectiveness and enjoyment of parenting. Mm-hmm. But I want to point out that quantum parenting, and I, I point this out to my to my high schoolers when I go and guest lecture in their biology class, quantum parenting principles actually can apply to everyone at any age starting right now in this moment. Because when we think about the idea of cellular regeneration, the fact that our taste buds only live for a few hours, our white blood cells only live for 10 days, and our muscle cells live for about three months. The students are really fascinated to hear that about 1% of all of our cells die and are replaced every day, meaning that at the cellular level, at least, we have uh, new bodies about every three months. And so all of these same environmental and experiential influences that I talk about as being central to a newly developing uh, individual person and the effect of that message growth or protection, am I safe or do I have to defend, those are also central to the health and quality of every one of our newly regenerated selves. So in that way, we are all pregnant with our future selves all the time, and so we're always participating in our own self-creation. So this idea of parenting for peace really is happening with ourselves continually. Okay, let's move into talking about parenting for peace then. Well, this actually I've only been um, writing about for the last couple of years, and the idea came to me when I, of all things, I um, switched on Good Morning America, and I caught the tail end of a segment called How to Raise a CEO, and they had just finished an interview with a woman who had like three or four kids now grown who were all CEOs of big corporations, and so, you know, not so much that you know, we don't need CEOs. I'm sure that, you know, we need CEOs to manage our companies, and I'm sure there's some very enlightened ones, but that kind of brought the question into my mind. How do we raise someone who can change the world? And I know that there's this really deep question that's living very strongly in the hearts of young people today, and that is the crisis that we're in on so many levels in our world. And so over the last months and talking to young people and writing about this, I've really sort of coalesced um, to a question, almost a challenge for for young people that if if you're deeply concerned about today's world and where it's going and if you feel like something more is needed to heal our social and environmental issues and you wonder is there anything you can do and you, you don't quite know how to participate in the solution, then my challenge is to take Gandhi up on his famous admonition to be the change you want to see, you know, in the world and raise children 
whose very beings are woven from that change. So be peace, and that is the first step uh, about about parenting for peace. But I just want to kind of do a little sidebar here and, and sort of point out the, the question of what is peace. You know, I want to make it clear that I'm not talking about sort of a, you know, hallmark, butterflies, limp dove concept of peace. Um, and, and this also, I think, really speaks, uh, Jari, to your, your focus on creativity. Yes, I believe a peaceful person has a heart, you know, to embrace and exemplify peace. But also, equally critical is a person has, um, a person who is oriented towards peace has a mind to innovate and imagine creative solutions, okay, to social and ecological challenges. Yeah. And also, lest we forget, the will to enact them. Okay, so all of this adds up to a brain that is wired with the capacity for self-regulation, for self-reflection, for trust, for empathy. And that person is never a genetically predetermined given, but always only a result of really dynamic interactions between genetics and environment, and these interactions begin long before a child is even born. We have these wonderful programs all over to teach children about peace, to teach them about nonviolence, conflict resolution. I am not denying the importance of education um, used in appropriate ways, but what has been wildly overlooked is that the brain development that is associated with these essential characteristics of health that I just described as being peaceful these are formed long before children ever set foot in school. Some of the most important neurological foundations for this level of health are formed during the prenatal period. And certain aspects of optimal development are fundamentally influenced as early as conception with, the mo- with a really powerful environmental variable being the parent's own thoughts feelings, and actions, which I kind of lump together under the banner of consciousness. Okay, I want to ask you where you see us able to break the chicken-egg cycle, uh, in a sense where you have people jumping into parenting before they themselves have these aptitudes for self-soothing, self-reflection, and all the things that you just went through. And then they're giving rise to a next generation of people who are, again, stressed and feeling unsafe. What specifically do you have people doing to make these fundamental changes in their own circuitry and set them up to do a better job with the next generation? Right. Well, first of all, I want to point out that I am not reinventing any wheels here. Okay. I'm just putting together, I guess, a variety of wheels. to make a new car that hasn't been really uh, on the road before. So um, we've learned a lot from the fields, for example, of um, as much as I used to just detest it, we've learned a lot from cognitive behavioral psychology. We've learned a lot from what is actually a kind of a new field of positive psychology, the study of resilience and the study of what makes people happy. Martin Seligman has sort of founded that. I say start with the most basic thing, which is behavior. Uh, even Dr. Laura, if you listen to her, she'll say this. Don't wait for the feelings to change. Change your behavior. Uh, we even know that if you put a smile on your face, even if you're not feeling necessarily happy, it, it actually initiates chemical cascades in the brain that will, in fact, feed back, and you will start feeling better. Now, I'm the last person to ever advocate that somebody, you know, engage in active repression of their feelings. I mean, you know, that would not be me. But there's a wonderful saying out of something called constructive living, which is a sort of psychological model called feel your feelings and do what needs to be done. So you can start with small actions. Usually what I have people start with is with simplifying. Are you talking about people who already have kids in the house? Are you talking about working with people, teenagers who who may soon have uh, early pregnancies, or or where do you work? Well, it depends on when people come to me. I mean, I 
uh, one of the realities in um, in any kind of private practice that deals with mental, emotional, human health, typically it's the case that people don't come to you until the situation has gotten painful, right? They, you know, typically aren't coming in a proactive care kind of way. It's one of the reasons I'm writing the book I'm reading. It's one of the reasons I go to talk, actually, to high school biology classes. I mean, those kids walk out of there so turned on. The idea that when they're pregnant, you know, down the line when they decide to have children, that the idea that they are empowered with so much influence is so, um, it's really exciting for them. Yeah, I think that preventive uh, layer of your work is, is really so critical. Yeah. So, I mean, that's where, I, so yeah, if I'm talking to them, I'm talking about, I'm really pointing out the, res- the research um, out of, for example, um, social neurobiology that that tells us that, you know, surround yourself with people you want to be more like because you're going to be more like them. I mean, the the, the, the research is just fascinating, for example, out of Daniel Goleman's um, latest book, Social Intelligence, the, the fact that we have these mirror neurons and my mirror neurons would allow me uh, to sit across from you, Jari, and if you were telling me about... Um, something sad that happened to you, it's what makes me feel sad. I mean, we are biologically wired to be connected as humans, to be to be empathic together. But so much that happens in our in our society, in our culture, undermines it. I do want to get back to the practical things just even to go down a quick list of things that people can start with at any point. Now, like you pointed out, it is so much better if people can come to these ideas before they're starting a family. But, for example, if a, if a mother knows when she's pregnant that her baby's brain is wiring up in response to the instructions it's getting from her about her world, that gives her amazing power. And we can't underestimate people. Uh, I hear I have people who hear this say, oh, but how can we ask a woman who's so disempowered and she's Living Below the Poverty Line, one of my dear colleagues, she took this work. She was um, with a psychosomatic medicine team in Rio, and she took this, this work um, into the slums of Rio and worked with the woman there, and they embraced it. I mean, we can never underestimate people on their mm-hmm. outer circumstance. It really has to do with their inner, you know, where they're oriented. So in terms of practical things. I do have these seven principles for peace in the home and in parenting, but certainly in our own selves. It begins within our own souls and our own hearts and our own minds. Can you run through this? I will. I will. Um, They go from presence to simplicity, and they follow an alphabetical mnemonic. They spell out parents so people can, it helps people remember what they are. So the first principle is presence. I mean, this is the greatest gift we can give to a child, for sure, is just the ability to be available in this moment right now with nothing else on our minds. Well, this really comes down to discipline. Anybody who's on a spiritual path who practices meditation realizes that that is what meditation is about. It is about being able to be present to this moment. You know, and one of the biggest issues in parenting is discipline. But all discipline comes down to self-discipline. And, you know, the ultimate foundational aspect of discipline really is the question to ask yourself, do I as a parent have mastery over something as fundamental as the movement of my thoughts? And when the answer is yes, this is picked up on by the child. And there's countless ways to practice presence. Yeah, uh, when you are cooking, when you're as my as my dear friend Ed Brown, the Buddhist priest, says, when you're cutting the carrots, cut the carrots. Don't think about the argument you had with your um, friend earlier that day, or the um, shopping trip you're taking tomorrow, or whatever. You're cutting the carrots. Taking a shower is one of my favorite ones. I you know I think about the places in this world where the idea of a hot shower would be regarded as as a miracle. As Such like, a luxury. So, oh, beyond a luxury, they would be like, oh, my gosh. 
And yet we do it every day, and typically we aren't present to it. We're rehearsing what's coming for the rest of the day, or we're, you know, reliving what went on earlier, or, you know. So, and it's not easy. It's not easy, but it's really the way to practice presence, is to continually bring yourself back to the wonderful, sensual feelings that a shower is full of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the second principle is awareness. And, and this is the... Um, the things that we need to know to be effective in our role, whether it's as a parent or as a human, but certainly as a parent, there are certain pieces of awareness that are important. And the first one, really, the most important, is to be aware of our own history, uh, to be able to make sense of our own early history, our own early relationships, what some of those lessons were that we learned, and to have an objective awareness of them, and what that does is it allows us to have a little bit of space in between us as the awareness of that story and the story itself, so we aren't quite so identified with our story. That turns out actually research. This is research to be the single strongest predictor of a child's healthy, secure attachment is if that child's parent can tell a coherent, cohesive narrative about their own early experience. That's so that's, interesting, Marcy. Yeah. So I believe it's Mary Main who did the work with the adult attachment interview. They had this finding that was completely anomalous. They couldn't figure out what, why. And, and this was this finding that more than being sensitive or the techniques of parenting, more so than anything else, this idea of being able to tell a cohesive narrative about one's early childhood turned out to be the strongest predictor of secure attachment in a child. Why would that be? Well, we really haven't fully understood this until in the last 10 years. We've had the ability to go in and look at brains and find out that the the capacity, the brain-based capacity to do that, to tell autobi- to have autobiographical memory is right in the same area, the orbital frontal cortex that mediates all these other um, capacities that I described self-regulation, self-reflection, trust, and empathy. That is all mediated by that orbital frontal cortex. And as a child is growing, what they're doing is they're wiring up uh, their brain circuitry to mirror that of their parents. It's really wild. It's like um, science fiction. It's such an exciting field and time in the field, right? Yes. So um, so that's that's a really important piece of awareness. But then, again, also to have a little understanding of some fundamental child development principles so that you know one of the biggest mistakes, one of the biggest obstacles that, you know, that parents stumble over, and we as a society, actually, is that we overestimate. We expect way too much from our young, young children. We really adultify them, and we sort of made them into just little small versions of, People, quote-unquote, not children, but people. To give you just one example that I always point out to a parent of a, of a toddler when they come to see me is I bring out my little chart on brain development, and I help them see that because that child is living in the sensory motor part of their brain, that is the part of their brain that is active, that for us to think about that cup over there, to look at it and have a mental model of it and just think about it, that's the equivalent of the child picking it up, touching it, and maybe even putting it in their mouth. And that helps them go, oh, she's not trying to drive me crazy. She's just doing her version of thinking. <laughs> so the next principle is rhythm, which is really one of the greatest needs of a young child. But it's also a fundamental human principle, which is often forgotten in our techno-automated, sped-up, um, phone, fax, email, so world. And that is that, you know, we are human beings with biorhythms and um, that for the young child especially, having a a strong rhythm is really important. That's routine. That's predictability. One of the first things, if anybody watches the, you know, Super Nanny or whatever the show is, the first thing she always does is put the family on a schedule. And that's where I think she gets a lot of her results. Emulation worthiness, that's the weirdest uh, of my seven principles because I had to make it fit an E, but it really says what it needs to say. Um, Joseph Chilton Pierce 
says this. He says, our children cannot be who we tell them to be. They can only be who we are. And this I guess is the word example is, is your E also. That Maybe I'll change that. A question to hold in your mind is, am I worthy of my child's unquestioning imitation at all times? That needs to be the question that a parent of a young child is walking around with because that is how they learn. Again, um, they don't listen so much to words. It's actions. It's that doing. It's what they're sensing and, 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 and seeing you do that really teaches them. So one little tip, if we're talking about how do we, if we didn't have the most conscious beginnings, I mean, believe me, I, <laughs> I come from a background where, you know, there wasn't a lot of consciousness about parenting for sure. And, um, Most you know, of us could say the same. You know, we're there are, against that. Exactly. There's wonderful little exercises and one that comes out of uh, one particular dimension of esoteric initiatic science is that making as little noise as possible with your utensils as you eat. Because this is something you do every day, two or three or four times a day. And so, you know, any change has got to involve habit because um, our habits are neural pathways. And any change we want to affect has to do with, with carving new neural pathways. And the big exciting discovery of the 90s, of course, was just how much plasticity there is at the level of the brain, how much we can change. So um, what this means, what this engages is the fine motor control. And fine motor control of our, of our, of our fingers has, has correlates in the brain that really um, institutes changes in fine neural connections, and it up-levels everything. That's just one little... Thing, one little practice. Refinement, refinement. at the table yes, exactly. turns into refinement in the little fibers of the brain. Absolutely, yeah. The N is nurturance, and nurturance is really just a practical demonstration of love. And, you know, there's just countless ways that we can expand our repertoire of showing our love. And, you know, again, for ourselves and for our children, part of it is understanding that young children really, really need a sense of reverence and awe and beauty. And we've just all but lost that in our society. You know, a little a little child will, out, standing out with her dad under the night sky, will say, Daddy, look at that star. And, you know, Daddy will respond to this four-year-old by saying, Why, yes, Hannah, and did you know that really what a star is is a very dense collection of hotly burning gases and, you know, because it's a quote-unquote teachable moment. We, we have become so enamored with our abilities to think that we have lost the sense that there's a time for that. There is definitely a time for offering children these kinds of, um, you know, more factual insights into how things work. But when they're young, they need a sense of awe and a sense of beauty and reverence for for our world and for them and how they work and how we work. So I, I would suggest a more fitting response to that comment would just say, oh, yes. And um, I learned a really wonderful response from a colleague of mine, Catherine DeMonte, who, um, you know, when when asked so many questions by the young child. How does this work? How does that work? How do they do that? You know, in order to respect the young child's uh, need for a bit of awe and mystery, a wonderful handy all-purpose response is, hmm, I wonder. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It takes some retraining and some reframing of what's uh, needed. The T is the most subversive one on the list. Um, It's trust. Everything in our consumerist culture teaches us that we're not quite enough, that something we can purchase will make up for our lack. But, you know, it really is a subversive kind of suggestion that we cultivate more trust. To understand, for example, that as parents, 
you know, we aren't the ultimate parents of our children. That life is is a collaborator with us. It goes back, you know, uh, Camille Gibran wrote that beautiful, beautiful piece about um, being parents and how our children are not our children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. And so that as parents, when we are faced with you know, an unending series of difficult questions and challenges. As we challenges, we can always turn back, turn to life, and say, "Look, you enlisted me in this collaboration, so I'm I'm trusting that you're going to help me here." And um, you know, this idea of trusting in life and in life's rhythms and in unseen resources is much more something that is found in in more traditional cultures. We've become so techno-savvy. When I have a new rose that's just budding in my garden, I mean, do I go in and tinker with the petals and try to pry them open or do something to optimize its development? No. I enrich the soil. I fertilize the soil, and I trust in the process of of that rose unfolding itself and the inherent wisdom of that. That's a very nice example. So when I'm talking to parents or future parents about some practical ways, one way is maybe you might forego some of those routine ultrasounds. Ultrasound was developed for the problem pregnancies, not for the routine ones. But once doctors had them in their offices, ultrasounds became routine. And now one of my heroes, she's a cultural anthropologist, Robbie Davis Floyd, notes that women now routinely come to see the image on the screen as the baby, <laughs> okay, that little murky blur on the screen becomes somehow more real than any sensation inside her womb or inside her psyche because the dominant reality engine of our time, as one writer puts it, has become the screen. And what has been taking place is this erosion of a mother's and father's own inner knowing and their connectedness to their child, to their, to their inner wisdom, but also, also to their child. Because the ultrasound image then becomes the baby monitor so we can hear the baby cry. It's this undermining of our own inner knowing. I recently heard um, about an interview or just a conversation with an indigenous mom who's in Africa. Now, they don't use diapers. She knows when her baby needs to urinate, and she just kind of holds the baby out to her side, and the baby pees, and and she puts her back. And somebody, you know, kind of a, a, a amazed observer said, how do you know when your baby needs to urinate? And she just looked absolutely perplexed, and she looked back at the questioner, and she said, well, how do you know when you need to urinate? In a way, how could you not know? There's just this attunement. Yeah, to her, it was as fundamental as how we know when we need to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely inscrutable to her that we wouldn't know. And I I started with this principle, and, and with it, it's Simplicity, and simplicity can really be a portal to joy. And joy is what really lies at the very foundation of health and well-being and peace. There's a new study that found that just simplifying daily life across four different dimensions dramatically reduced the symptoms of clinically diagnosed ADHD in school-age kids. So if we can cultivate a sense of wonder and imagination this helps guarantee simplicity because then everything becomes amazing. As a parent, you know, for children, wind through the trees as fairies dancing or a piece of wood becomes anything. A doll, a, a lion, a, um, a spoon can be a, a flag or a king's scepter, and we don't need to constantly purchase things. I Wow. Well, I think I'm going to ask the really difficult question here, and I actually don't expect you to be able to answer it, but I'd love to talk about it with you, and that is that what you're suggesting sounds very much to me like a shift of worldview, a shift of priorities, uh, to have a world of peace, of course, all these things would contribute in a big way to that, but can we look at the social and political realities of a shift of worldview? And since you're working in this realm and you're putting forth these wonderful ideals in your book and in your talks, what is it you see that you're really up against and what do you think it would take? 
to turn things around. Well, you're right. It's it's it's, it's huge, right? It's huge. It's huge. But I'm going to give you two in terms of what we might see as things that are interfering with peace as a society. Uh, I'll start with two and as a way of delimiting it, you know, of sort of making it a manageable conversation or a manageable um, scope of, of exploration. Great. Um, one of the most fundamental and serious ways that we interview with the development of a peaceful society is the way we give birth. Childbirth is an incredibly decisive moment in development when critical systems in the brains and the bodies of both the mother and the baby organize in lifelong ways and of most fundamental importance, as we're talking about birthing a peaceful generation, has to do with the circuitry for oxytocin, which is called the hormone of connection. Some people call it the hormone of love. There are biochemical cascades that are triggered during an unimpeded mammalian labor and birth that establish lasting set points for the brain's self-regulating and social functions. But our obstetrical protocols routinely disrupt this process. And then immediately after birth, uh, this really complex hormonal cocktail orchestrates biochemical exchanges between the mother and her newborn, opening never-to-be-repeated opportunity windows for optimal healthy development, again, of these social engagement systems, all organized around the mother and baby's face-to-face togetherness, which we call bonding. Yet again, U.S. hospital protocols typically disrupt and disturb this complex weaving that happens, that should happen in the first hours of life. So we have so many newborns ending up in plastic isolates, receiving what I call a faulty relational imprint, which is I connect with things, not people, which can impair lifelong the capacity for healthy human rapport, social intelligence, and these foundations of peace that we've been talking about. Now, popular culture relentlessly cultivates our fear of birth, and it entrances us with the promise of salvation through technology, and yet our U.S. infant mortality rate is one of the highest in the developed world, and American women are dying from childbirth at the highest rate in decades. So we have this huge disconnect between our perception of how things are and how things really are. So that's number one, is how we give birth. The other huge opportunity for raising a peaceful generation, which we typically miss because we don't understand the possibilities, is pregnancy. I mean, we give more thought and care and preparation and and awareness to um, animal husbandry than we do to human reproduction. Does that make sense? I mean, people who breed animals for a living, who, you know, livestock and, and thoroughbred horses, they know the value of a well-nourished mother going back for many months before she becomes pregnant. They know the importance of that. Now, that's just one level, the, uh, the physical health. Um, there's also so much to do with the psychology and the psychological health. One social philosopher and spiritual teacher suggested that rather than spending the billions that we do on hospitals and courtrooms and prisons, that if governments were to concentrate their attention on pregnant mothers, he said the cost would be so far less and the results would be infinitely superior. He felt we could close the prisons in two generations because Indeed, pregnancy is nature's head start program. We're always talking about early intervention, you know, with young kids. Pregnancy is nature's head start program. This is when basic aspects of the fetal brain wire up in direct response to the instructions it receives about the world. So if I'm a pregnant mother, my state of mind is my baby's entire universe, and it directs his body and brain to adapt their development to thrive in my environment. This makes perfect sense when we realize that we are mammals. We are built to survive as best we can. Nature set it up that way. So it makes sense for the developing brain to be getting information about what it's going to need to survive, right? 
So unremitting stress, anxiety, depression during pregnancy communicates to the baby that it is a dangerous world out there. And so the baby grows a brain suited to survive in a dangerous environment. So that brain is more likely to be hyperreactive, lower on impulse control, with an impaired capacity to feel calm and content. Okay? So there's this kind of vicious cycle, a vicious anti-peace cycle that can be set up. This is likely to be a temperamental infant, difficult to soothe and calm, and a baby who's challenging to parent. So then the cycle goes down insidiously. The baby's hard to soothe, so that's frustrating for mom and dad. This generates a spectrum of strong feelings within them, which further activates the baby's heightened antennae for threat because that's that's what's living in them, and that's the level that babies live at. They pick up that energy. Um, that makes him even more agitated, and so this may lead to subtle or outright neglect or abuse by exhausted, exasperated parents. And with no positive interruption of this negative feedback loop, the child then has limited opportunity to internalize the self-regulating capacities that are developed through healthy attachment that I was talking about, that orbital frontal cortex, where all of those peaceful capacities are developed. Um, then once the toddler is, quote-unquote, a handful, then there's likely consequences to make the child mind, which are punishments whose shame-based action further thwarts peace-oriented brain development and instead hardwires it to thrive in a threatening world. And then later, during school, the child's impulsivity gets labeled and his sense of alienation from himself, from others, from life just grows and grows. So the implications of this for society are immense, okay? But if a pregnant mother is generally centered, I'm not talking about an occasional stressful day. I'm talking about, again, we're talking about habits, routine, predictable, consistent experience. If a pregnant mother is generally centered and peaceful, consciously cultivating joy in her life, um her baby will develop a body and brain prepared to be peaceful, creative, and successful. So setting aside the sort of the sociopolitical realities of that for a second, I just want to point out that this is where we see science, quote-unquote science and spirit, intersecting. That's very um, popular these days to see these intersections. But truly, the hard science research from the field of neuroscience is now giving empirical credence to what many spiritual traditions have offered us through the ages, that during the time when we're being knit together in the womb, we are wired with lifelong lessons about the world and how we'll best fit into it, in peace mode or in protection mode. Again, it's all about growth or protection. You're listening to Living Hero on livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and I'm talking today with Marcy Axness. Marcy, I've noticed that you've presented at Faith and Science Conference and that there is quite a spiritual dimension to the work that you do. I'm wondering if there's anything more you'd like to say about the spiritual issues related to pregnancy and parenting. Well, you know, I guess we have to come back and say, well, what is, quote-unquote, spiritual? There are many people who would not consider themselves religious at all, but who have a very strong sense of spiritual connection, meaning our engagement with and our connection with the unseen aspects of human experience. I mean, this is the area that that Einstein was working in, for goodness sake, and this is why I sometimes have to wink and smile when people make the distinction between science and spirit. Spirituality is a science, actually, but, you know, not to start um, counting the angels dancing on the head of that pin, I will say that I love uh, how he pointed out, Albert Einstein pointed out, he says, do you remember how electrical currents and unseen waves were laughed at? And it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said the knowledge about man is still in its infancy. We know so little about what 
is involved in human experience. Uh, we've been able to identify and prove and, you know, do research on just such a small dimension of it. But, yes, there is a fundamental spiritual dimension. Even if we're looking at it at this most basic level, I am inviting parents, even before they conceive, to start to consider, to hold in their minds or to bring into their minds a thought of that coming child and to imagine who that child might be, to start envisioning what they would want for that child, what kind of noble qualities. And this all just has to do with engaging with the unseen. And that's why when we talk about these ways in which we have eroded our, I would say, our very willingness to involve ourselves with the unseen, when we're talking about ultrasound images of our babies to reassure us that they're okay, we've really, it's almost like a muscle that we've let go very flaccid and uh, get quite weak, our ability to to tap into these unseen areas and dimensions of human experience. And so I think we've gotten out of balance in that way. We've become a little bit enamored and um, bedazzled by our own feats of technology, which certainly are wonderful. And yes, we've all been baptized in technology. Let us embrace the blessings of what was really meant to bring freedom. That's what technology was really conceived for, was to bring us freedom. And but yet we've, we have ended up somewhat enslaved by it at some levels. So part of what I'm calling for is let's bring ourselves back into some balance and exercise those muscles that we've let get weak. Marcy, what's next for you? What's on the horizon? And please tell people how they can get in touch with you. And please share anything else you'd like to add. Right now, the number one thing that I'm involved in is writing the book, Raising Generation Packs, A Science of Peace and Parenting. And I guess, you know, as publishers that want to change titles, I'm pretty confident that the main title will remain. The subtitle might be different. I do speak around the around the country, and sometimes out of the country I'll be speaking up in British Columbia at the end of September in a little town called Nelson. People can always reach me through my website, which is quantumparenting.com. And they can email me. My my phone number is on there, and I'm happy to hear from anyone. The heart of all of this is that it really happens one person at a time. That's why I can't imagine ever seeing my way forward to trying to ever legislate anything in this realm. You know, we have to change our minds about what we want, and that's how great innovations happen. The fact that insurance companies very often now will pay for acupuncture didn't happen because they appointed a, uh, a house select committee to investigate the efficiency and efficacy of acupuncture. It happened because consumers wanted it. They, they wanted something beyond what they had, and they sought it out, and they found it, and then that consumer demand created change. And I think that's what can happen when we're talking about parenting. We can change our minds about what we want and what is important to us. And that's, I think, what's going to have to happen. Thank you so very much for being with us and sharing your experience. Well, thank you for inviting me.